0: Welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm Pastor Tim. It's uh, good to see you here this morning. I'd like to share with you from Psalm 139 this morning. For any of you who have um, felt broken at some point in your life. Well, Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts or even when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know where I am or what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the furthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Friends, we come to this place all from different walks all from different parts of a journey, all to experience a God who takes us from our brokenness, all from different piles of pieces, and helps us put our lives back together again. And So we're here today to worship our God who loves us enough to meet us where we are, but loves us too much to leave us the way that he found us. We are in our fifth week of our series, "A Faith That Works." We're studying James, and James's letter to um, this group of Christian believers um, changed my life in so many ways. When I had fallen away from the church uh, as a uh, as a veteran trying to find myself again, coming out of the military, I, I looked for the shortest book I could read, and this was one of them, and. It struck me how this letter in the Bible was all about putting your faith into action which was exactly what had caused me to leave the church in the first place was the hypocrisy in the church and as I studied more and more into the book of James I realized that what James was actually talking about throughout this entire letter was genuine religion or true religion as the theologians would talk about that Um, James was trying to impart upon the people he was writing to that as people of faith, if if you are calling yourself a Christian or proclaiming faith in Christ, it means you are supposed to live your life in a different way. And while some would claim that it was in conflict with Paul, in reality, it wasn't. Because Paul would say you are saved by grace through faith to accomplish good works. James would say, if you proclaim and profess a faith in Christ, it would be demonstrated because your life would be different because you are now transformed. Wesley would say, you've been saved by grace, and in your process of moving towards sanctification, your faith would then be expressed through these means of grace that would change the world around you because there is no gospel except for a social gospel. There is no holiness but social holiness. And so we've been walking through the book of James and hitting some major components of what it means to have a true religion, a faith that works in the real world, like real faith for real people in real life. And today we're going to step upon a landmine for some, because James was really good at that. As we found, he doesn't hold much back. And I'm calling it family feud. Not that we're going to talk about our inner families, because I think you've heard enough stories about my brothers. Um, but the family of God. And like most of James's conversations, he, he starts with a question. And the question that we begin with today is, what's causing all of these fights among you? Why are you fighting amongst, yourself, amongst yourselves? And so today, as we, as we jump into chapter 4 of James, we're going to look at the roots of, of our quarreling, the roots of our fighting. And again, we may not like what we hear, but sometimes the truth is not always fun, is it? Sometimes the truth leads to brokenness in ourselves, in our systems, and in our world. But the good news is, is that while we are all broken, we serve an amazing God, who offers healing and restoration, forgiveness and grace. Let's pray together. Holy God, we are so grateful to be in this place, in this space. God, we ask that you would let your spirit descend on us, to fill us as we listen to your word. We listen to the story, again, of how you sent your son to save us. Lord, we ask that you would use the words, the music, the sounds, the silence, and all this experience can bring to help us draw closer to you in these moments. Let it not just be an hour away, but an hour drawing closer to you. It's in the name of Jesus the Christ, your Son and our Savior, that we pray. Amen. I was reading a while back about humility and faith. And I came across an interesting story about a a, a rabbi and a a cantor and a janitor. And and no, they weren't walking into a bar. They were in a temple. I mean, come on, guys and gals, this is is a church. Um, The story went something like this. Uh, There was once a rabbi who overcome with a sense of humility before God's magnificent creation. Threw himself before the altar of the temple and cried, I am nobody! I am nobody! Can you picture that in your head? The cantor, observing the rabbi from the rear of the synagogue, was moved by the rabbi's humility and devotion, and he too, he too, um, joined the rabbi at the altar crying, I am nobody! I am nobody! And then the janitors, he was sweeping the floors in the hall and he heard the cries of the, of the religious men and similarly he was moved by, moved by their devotion and, and so he joined them also at the altar crying, I am nobody! I am nobody! At which point the cantor turned to the rabbi and and pointed to the janitor and said, look who thinks he's nobody! Today, we continue our journey into James and his teaching on finding true religion. As we begin chapter 4 of this short letter, our, our, our focus narrows, concentrating on the state of the heart. Um, and as we've seen over the last few weeks, James begins this section of the text again with this question, and the question from, comes from chapter 4, verse 1, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? And this is it, it's an honest question, is it not? Why is it that we are so prone to fighting amongst ourselves in the church? Not merely just as human beings, right? Not, not, not just wars and things, but, but as the body of Christ, why are we so prone to fighting? Because remember, James, James is not writing this letter to a general audience of random people walking down the street like he's standing on a, a soapbox with a, with a megaphone down at Lugnut Stadium. right? He, he's writing a letter to a community of believers, to a gathering of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, he's responding to quarrels that have arisen. Or else, why would he be writing this letter? And why would he be writing this at all? It's interesting, I think, isn't it? so many things change over time my beautiful iphone x is now out of date i remember when i got it how proud i was how much in debt i was because i got it so many things change out of over time and so many things yet so many things remain the same People and cultures and nationalities or nations change. But, but through it all, some things continue on exactly the same as they have always been. Back at the foundations of the early church, first century foundations of the church, the very beginning, James asks, asks a simple question, Why are you good church people fighting amongst yourselves? It's a good thing we don't do that anymore, right? That we wised up all these thousands of years later. Living in 20.20. It's going to catch on, I'm telling you. It's like version 20.20. I'm starting it. It's going to catch on. Once again, we find ourselves with a question that was written in the first century that directly relates to to our century in the modern church? What causes our quarrels? Why do we fight amongst ourselves? Why do we stand once again on the cusp of another denominational schism? Why do we struggle with ourselves? Why do we, even as a church campus quarrel with each other about things like music and chairs and, and, and lines and where the hall and the aisle is and, and, and little things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. As James asks, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? James answers this question by asking another question, which reminds me of a family member that I won't, um, you know, bring up because we're not talking about my family today. But maybe you have a paternal family member that likes to answer questions with questions or had one. James answers this question with a question by saying, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? And that's going to be our main point this morning. Our quarrels come from within us. Our quarrels come from within. James goes on to say, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. So James is speaking of, of jealousy and desire, not merely of things that we don't have, but for things that we see other people possessing. Which is a reflection to something we in the church world would call like coveting. You know, that's that's kind of biblical. That's a, that's Old Testament jargon, right? Coveting. I think they said something like, "Do not covet your neighbor's wife or husband or oxen." Don't covet your neighbor's wife. These are the things. Coveting is the things that we want, but we can't get ourselves. Not the things that we want in life that we can achieve, like that we can work for. Because there are things that we can work for and we can get. So James is talking about the things that we want that we can't have. So how do you respond? This is an interesting question. How do you respond if there's something that you want that you can't have? You really want something, but you can't have it. The answer is no. I want that, but no, you can't have it. Nope. Do you sit and stew... Or like a toddler, do you, do you reach for that cookie jar that's just out of reach and stretch and stretch and stretch, just hoping that by some miracle of God, you're going to grow three feet to the top of the refrigerator, like Stretch Armstrong. If you know what that is, you're as old as I am. And you're just going to reach, and you're going to get to that cookie jar at the top of the refrigerator. And when you realize you can't, you just start screaming, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it! Experience has taught me that most of us spend our time trying to figure out ways to achieve that which we want but we can't have. And if not, we dream about having that reality in our fantasy, rea- in our fantasy life. We sit back and we dream about it. And this is why things like role-playing games, online media... Internet pornography and reality TV shows have become a mainstay in our modern society because they feed into this fantasy life where we can covet things outside of normal reality. If we can't have it, we dream about it. If we can't dream about it, though, if you can't achieve it in your fantasy life, that's when something else happens. Do you know what it is? Oh, we get angry. Oh, we get angry. Don't forget, James is talking to church people. And while the secular world makes possible any fantasy that you want, there's not a whole lot of fantasy worlds for the church. Those who are part of our family in Christ, he says that we don't get what we want, those things that are motivated by our internal desires and what we want we can't have. And so we scheme <clears throat> and we kill and we fight and we wage war and we take it away from people. Now, I know many of you are going to say, uh, and you're pushing back in your chair, I can feel the, the corporate pushback already. Like everyone's already like, are you leaning back? You're like, nope, nope, nope. Saying now wait a minute, Tim. I'm pretty sure I haven't killed anybody this year in the church right? But I've seen that creepy room in the basement, and those of you who've been here long enough know the creepy room in the basement I'm talking about. It's straight out of Saw. I'm telling you, there's a room downstairs that I won't even go in. It's creepy. So I want to remind you of some words that Jesus gave in the Gospel of Matthew, and then I want to explain kind of what he meant. Because it's misunderstood, Matthew chapter five verses twenty one and twenty two say, "If you have heard, or you have heard, our your ancestors were told, you must not murder. Um, If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Right? That's kind of like don't commit adultery. One of those other ones was don't commit murder. This is what Jesus said. But I tell you, if you even if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And if you call someone an idiot." you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. I didn't make that up. It's in the Bible. There's some good stuff in there. Read it sometime. It's pretty good. Now, be honest and keep your, your answer to yourself. This is, this is a rhetorical question. Have you ever called a brother and sister in Christ an idiot? out loud, to their face, behind their back, or in your head. Don't say it out loud. Because I have, and I'm the pastor. I'm not proud of it. I'm not happy about it. I'm not even smiling about it. But you know what? I'm a broken person. I sin. I fall short of the glory of God's standard. And I have repented. I have confessed, repented, before God and ask for forgiveness, and I have received His grace because that's and His mercy and forgiveness because that is what you do. But what many theologians have come to understand about Jesus' words here in Matthew, in this part of the gospel, is that Jesus is not linking words and actions as though they're the same thing because that's what we think. We're like, wait, if I'm angry, it's the same thing as murdering someone. That doesn't make sense to me. It's like, if I call you an idiot, that's like I killed you. No, because that's what our English language says. When we say, well, it's, it's like or as, that means those are the same thing, because those are like similes. We're going we're to connect them in our English language, and that means they're the same thing. No. What Jesus is saying is that both actions have the same practical consequence that murder has the consequence of judgment, and anger has the consequence of judgment as well. However, where one action may cause a fight, the other will probably send you to jail for the rest of your life on earth, right? We have human consequences for things, but there are also divine consequences. So Jesus is indicating is that there is a condition of the heart that has a a divine consequence. So you see, murder is merely the outward expression of the inner emotion or the inner condition of anger. And so the two are, are linked together. The state of the heart and the external action. And similarly, the outward action of calling someone an idiot or cursing someone who is created in the image of God, as we talked about last week, is the outward expression of the inner emotion of anger, so that same inner emotion. The inner state of the heart is the same, but the outer manifestation of that inner action is different. So, from the world's point of view, our culture would tell us that the internal motivation to to curse someone, a fellow Christian, versus murder um, is completely incomparable. Simply calling someone an idiot, calling another Christian or cursing them, to hell with you, would be so far to an extreme different than murdering someone. In our court system, you call the police, they're going to laugh you off the phone. And they're going to list your number, and they're never going to let you call again. But we also live in a world that prefers to treat symptoms instead of cure diseases. We live in a culture that likes to focus on quick fixes over long-term investments. And this is the same world that would have you believe that all you need to be happy is the newest cell phone, the fastest car, the sexiest body, and you're going to have the perfect life. And let's be honest. Often the world gets it wrong. So, when we read Jesus' words about calling someone an idiot, leading to the same consequences of murder, we, we're taken aback because that's not what the world tells us. But that's because we often forget that it's, the, that God is most concerned about something else. God's not worried as much about what we do. He's not as worried about the outer action. He's much more worried about the inner state of our heart because that's what manifests the outer action. It's the inner state of our heart that leads us to those actions. It's from this point... This place, this physical, spiritual, emotional point that drives what we do. It drives our actions. It's, it's this tangible yet untangible, definable yet undefinable thing within us that some reduce to like a person's character or, you know, their moral fiber. I like to call it our heart, or some say their soul, their spirit, their conscience—the thing in which the world, the human language fails to describe. You know, there aren't words to describe this thing. But recall what God said to Samuel, as Samuel in the Old Testament was was seeking this this first king to to lead the Hebrew people. He was looking at all of these brothers, the strong men, the lead, the people. And he said, that one's the most beautiful. That one's the strongest. That one looks the part. And God said, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. So I ask you, how is your heart today? How is your heart today? Because the quarrels that we face as the people of God stem from the brokenness of our hearts. They come from within us, from from deep within ourselves. And often, the blame is misplaced. It's misplaced on priorities. We don't want to be angry with each other. We don't desire to be the authors of destruction within the church, though there may be a few disgruntled outliers who choose to do as much damage as they can on their way out the doors, but but most do not come to this place. Most people come to the community of God with the intention to quarrel and fight. Most of us actually ask God to help us give the ability to love each other better when we pray. The root of our quarrels and fightings inside and outside of the church, are the internal desires of our heart. We covet that which we see other people have, the desires leading to a dangerous state of the heart, and and we question why. Why don't we have what they have? Whether it's a spiritual issue or or any other issue, why do they get it and we don't? And James explains it by saying, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, you don't get it, because your motives are all wrong. You, only, you want only what will give you pleasure. Years ago, Garth Brooks was interviewed on a TV show by David Frost, who asked him uh, to explain the origins of, of his um, song, Unanswered Prayers. I don't know if you listen to country music from the 90s, but Garth Brooks had this song, Unanswered Prayers, and he said that the song came to him after he and his wife ran into one of his old girlfriends. And he recalled that when he was dating the first girl, he prayed that God would would um, allow him to to stay with her forever. He said now that he in that interview, he was glad that God didn't answer his prayer. And I quote, he said, sometimes the best prayers are the ones God does not answer. Prayer for many people is a make or break discipline. It's something that makes you or breaks you. As a pastor, I've sat and spoke with individuals who prayed for loved ones as they passed on to the other side of eternity. and. And or after years of faithful prayers for health and healing, they then turned and walked away from their faith altogether. I've also walked besides those those who have prayed once for healing and received it in miraculous ways, and in ways that you would you would never believe if I told you. The situation that makes it a situation that would make it clear to me why Jesus would say to the leper to tell no one about the miracle of their healing. And what they experienced. Because in talking about it, it would only create skepticism in other people and not faith. Without Jesus there. I've listened to people pray as though they were on a talk show. And I've heard prayers given so quickly I barely had time to close my eyes. I've listened to prayers that sounded so much like a Christmas wish list that I felt like if I opened my eyes I would see them sitting on Santa's lap. I've been blessed to hear a child speak their first prayer. I've prayed with families in moments of deep despair. I've prayed, prayed using words, music, and I've prayed using silence. I've been immersed in the mumbling babble of, of, the, of Korean Holy Spirit-driven corporate prayer. I've even spent hours in complete prayerful silence in a monastic community, community of Benedictines. I have have experimented in the richness of prayer through the use of ancient icons. I share all of this simply to illustrate the vast diversity of the experience of prayer. We all come to prayer from, from a different place. We all have different traditions. We have different forms. And we're all raised differently in prayer. However, James is clear that there is one central concept that we must remember that links through this entire passage, including how we pray. And that is the motives of our heart. James says that your motives are all wrong. When we petition God and ask God to help us in a specific way, we are asking for our reasons. It's almost funny when you think about it. It's almost makes me want to laugh at how simple our life of faith could be if we would just fix one simple thing in our life. One simple thing in our life that's gone wrong. One thing. There's only one thing that stands between the average person and a life filled of the Holy Spirit. One thing. Let's see if I can capture that one thing with a few questions. What are you living for? What is your motivation? What is at the center of your heart? What is your purpose? What do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why are you, who are you trying to please in all of this? Is your life about you or someone else? Or something else? Whose are you? Whose glory are you living for? The reason our prayers don't get answered is that our motives are all wrong. We are only asking for the things that we want, not what God wants, because we have a heart issue. The reason we mistreat each other, curse each other, and call each other names is because we disregard the fact that we are all made in the image of God in the first place, and our hearts bear the same anger that causes people to murder instead of carrying the love and compassion of a great filled God Grace-filled God, because we have a heart issue. Why do we fight and quarrel with each other? Instead of being driven by the things of God, we are driven by that which gives us pleasure. And we covet the things that other people have, and that drives us to fight amongst ourselves. We have a heart issue. Jesus recognized our heart problem and called us and called us out on it in Luke 6. He said, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from a treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. But we don't have to fall into despair. We don't have to lose hope because Jesus came to this earth because God saw that we could not fix ourselves. We have, a heart issue. That's a fact. We know this. Identifying the problem is often the first step to recovery. Humankind has always had a heart problem. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And the good news is that Jesus came to save us to heal the brokenness of our hearts. The answer is simple and yet exceptionally hard to live out. It requires surrender but comes with Complete hope. It means risking everything, risking everything, but gaining the highest reward. It means taking a leap of faith off the highest ledge imaginable and trusting that God will see you through no matter what happens. Recall Jesus praying in the garden before his arrest. He wept. As he faced the prospect of crucifixion, he pleaded with God to let him, to lead him down a different path so that he wouldn't have to suffer and endure the pain. And he asked God to take the cup from him. But before he said amen, before he said amen, he said, But not my will, God. Let yours be done. And this is what we each must do we too must surrender. Our will for God's will to be done. To place ourselves second to God. To have at the center of our being the desire of God and not our own desire. To set aside our selfishness so that his will would come through. To trust that if God leads us to it, that he's going to see us through it. And I know that's cliche. But it takes a level of trust no matter what direction we will be going in, no matter what unforeseen situation we may find ourselves in, that before we say amen, we would be committed to saying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Because God is more concerned about our hearts than he is about what we do and what we say we're going to do. Because people tend to look at the outward appearance. We analyze the situation. We check all the variables. We analyze the risk. But God looks at the heart. And God is looking at your heart. and He's looking at mine. And so I ask you again, how is your heart today? I'm going to invite you to pray with me today. But I want you to pray a prayer that is attributed to the Wesleyan tradition. is called the the Covenant Prayer in the Wesleyan Tradition. I invite you to pray this with me as we end our message this morning. Please join me. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you, or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are ours and we are yours. So be it. And the covenant we just made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Before we move on to our last song this morning, I have an announcement that I need to share with you. We've known for a while that this year would very likely be the year that I would be reappointed. As it happens... I was presented with a few options, and I have decided that, for personal reasons, I will be taking a leave of absence to pursue other opportunities. This leave of absence is voluntary, per my request, and while the exact day of my leave is still unknown, this has been affirmed by Bishop Bard and will begin on or before July 1st with the appointment calendar of 2020. So I ask you to please keep my family and myself in your prayers as we step into this next phase of our ministry journey. If you have questions, I encourage you to talk to myself or Pastor Rod as we move forward. Remember, you're not simply dismissed from this place, but you're sent out into the world and that we take the church with us when we go. So here these words that the Lord gave to Moses, that Moses gave to Aaron, that Aaron gave to his sons as they were called to bless the people of Israel. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Go in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.